Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to another episode of Accelerating Government. For over 40 years, the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council has served a unique position in the federal marketplace as a nonprofit whose purpose is to bring together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. On today's show, we're joined by federal CIO Claire Martorana to discuss the federal government's newly released information technology operating plan. And we'll also hear from government and industry leaders on some outstanding innovations in the federal market. In June, the Office of Management and Budget released the federal government's information technology operating plan. Joining us today to discuss this important plan is Claire Martorana, the federal chief information officer. Thank you for joining us, Claire. Thank you so much, Dave. What a pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's important work, and, and we're delighted to have you on the show. So we're going to get right into it. You recently released the IT operating plan in part as a response to the congressional request for a plan to maximize the impact of funding provided for IT modernization. So perhaps a good place to start is with the funds specifically called out in the report. And then from there, we can dive deeper into the key priorities in the report. Technology Modernization Fund features prominently in the report as it does throughout the year. So why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit about the significant influx of project proposals that you've been receiving and how are things going? Terrific. TMF is one of my favorite subjects. I am fortunate to serve as the board chair for the Technology Modernization Fund, and I work with an incredible collaborative group of federal employees that are subject matter experts in many different areas of technology, you know, from engineering to acquisition. And so uh, we have a great team. We also have a terrific project management office that has been stood up and enhanced at GSA. So I think really, you know, the pandemic revealed so much about the way that we serve our customers in the federal government. And the Technology Modernization Fund is several years old, and but was funded with a billion dollars under the American Rescue Plan. And so we have been able to do some very innovative things with that American Rescue Plan funding, including uh, reducing the payback. Previously, te uh, the Technology Modernization Fund was 100% repayment, and we were able to add some payment flexibility due to the nature of the uh, American Rescue Plan allocation dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic as well as with the solar wind cybersecurity issue. Excellent. The uh, repayment flexibility was certainly a great win, and uh, and I think that helped open the floodgates for more of this much-needed money. What are some of the yeah. types of projects that you're seeing the yeah. most interest in people pursuing, and are there any areas where you'd like to encourage more projects to be identified? Yeah, that that's a great question. You know, we have really seen a variety of projects coming in, a lot of them very focused on cybersecurity, you know, foundational items, IT modernization ongoing at most agencies. And also, we didn't see quite as much. We saw some great shared service proposals, but we didn't see very much on customer experience specifically. And we had a lot of feedback that due to going to maximum telework and people needing to access government information 
during the pandemic that there were a lot of deficits in our government website. You know, very basic things from them not being accessible or not mobile optimized. And so we chose to do a $100 million allocation that really demonstrates the administration's commitment to delivering great customer experience and a government that works for all Americans. So I'd say that that is kind of the framework that we've been working under under the Technology Modernization Fund. And we are now starting out on this customer experience focused allocation and are having some really wonderful conversations with agencies about their problems and how TMF might be part of the solution for them. That's great to hear. The report also calls out the Information Technology Oversight and Reform Account, or ITOR, and the Federal Citizen Services Fund, or FCSF. Maybe tell us a little bit about your thoughts and priorities for these funds, and I know how important it is for you to galvanize all of the work across all of these funds, so maybe we talk a little bit about that. Yeah, one of the things that was important, we actually were very deliberate in calling this more of an operating plan than a strategic plan. The difference for me was, you know, that the operating plan really tried to outline the strengths and the strategic goals of each of those individual funds that you mentioned. So how do we work together? How do we make sure that we are funding projects, for example, through TMF, that would be an accelerant to a project, but that isn't competitive with their normal appropriation. So we have taken a lot, it has taken a fair amount of effort for us to stand up the operating model that we use between the United States Digital Service, multiple component pieces of uh, the General Service Administration, and also OMB. So it has been really a pleasure working with those teams to make sure that we can connect the dots and ensure that we are working as one technology team. Very good. The report highlights four crucial priorities that I know are near and dear to your heart. So why don't we turn our attention there next? What are some of your thoughts about the first priority in the report, cybersecurity? Obviously a national imperative and something I know you spent a lot of time working on. Yeah, everything begins with a firm foundation, and that is cybersecurity. The Office of the National Cyber Director has begun developing a national cybersecurity strategy with the goal to build durable, you know, cyber, a secure cyber foundation to support our digital aspirations, right, for the administration's policy goals. So we have done a lot of work in um, the Technology Modernization Fund, working on zero trust implementations and proposals that we have gotten in. And we feel really good about A, where the zero trust strategy is and how we are working across multiple agencies to make sure that we are doing things like sharing knowledge, writing playbook, scaling this work so that all agencies can benefit from one investment. The uh, zero trust work is just so important, and, and that's something that ACTI has been delighted to be supporting you on over the over the yeah. you know, time that you've been in place and, and before you when Suzette was there. It's just such a yeah. fundamental shift in the, in the, in securing our networks and our people, and yeah. it's going to provide such great dividends to all of us. So kudos on you for staying true on that and uh, and working yeah. that so hard. Um, yeah. The second priority in the report is, of course, IT modernization, which which we've touched on yeah. already by talking about the TMF fund. But I want to make sure we give you ample time to talk about IT modernization is one of the four priorities. So is there anything you'd like to sh else you'd like to share with the audience about the IT modernization work? 
Yeah, IT modernization, oh, it is also foundational to the work that we're doing, right? It, it is really critical that we are, you know, protecting our systems and data and making sure that we're patching and we're doing just the general IT hygiene that is needed. I think that we still have a fair amount of legacy IT in the federal government. And our hope is that we can continue to focus on, you know, really quality IT modernization investments, you know, investing at the right time on the right projects based on where the agencies are in their own modernization journey. Because as you know, and your audience knows, it is really everybody's in their, at their own starting line, middle of the race. I don't think I have really seen an agency that has crossed a finish line completely since so much of this zero trust strategy is new. But it is really exciting to see the talent in the federal government, the amount of folks that are focused on this and working in the most collaborative way that I have really seen. So it, it is it is pretty terrific. But IT modernization will continue to be a core tenant of everything that we do. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a lot to be done and, and great progress has been made, as they say. And, uh, and yeah. we've certainly made a lot of progress moving to the cloud. And now we see more agencies focusing on looking at those thousands of systems that still exist even after you've thought about yeah. your infrastructure to the cloud and how to retire, yeah. refresh, replace those. And so it, it will be a top right. topic for, for quite a bit of time to come. The third priority is a digital first customer experience. And so I know yeah. a passion area of yours as well. And so why don't you tell us yeah. a little bit about what you're focused on there? Yeah, it, it is really, you know, our customers expect, get to interact with private sector companies and they expect the same of their government. And again, I think the pandemic really shined a light on this. And we at all of our federal agencies are focused on making sure that we are meeting our customers where they are, making sure that digital is a key part of that, but digital is not the only solution. It is a part of an omni-channel strategy that we are working on to make sure that people can access information that is accurate and credible as quickly as possible without, you've probably heard me say this before, without needing to understand the org chart of an organization. They should be able to do a very simple search query, get to accurate and credible government content that leads them to be able to accomplish their task or answer their question. So we are really focused on that across the board and, and it really encompasses the other components, cybersecurity and IT modernization in order to deliver that digital experience. We're gonna take a short break now and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with the federal government's technology leader, Claire Martorana. I'm Dave Wendergren and you're listening to Accelerating Government brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wenergren, and in this segment, we'll continue our conversation with Federal CIO Claire Martirana on the recently released Federal Government Information Technology Operating Plan. Claire, when we were going to break, we were talking about the imperative for customer experience and the voice of the customer, and that's just something I would really like to give you some kudos about, about your willingness to engage across the community with industry and government to get the best views. Can you talk a little bit about how that was helpful to you, perhaps uh, on Zero Trust or any of these other projects? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the policy experts here at the White House are extraordinary. But 
everything we do, as you well know, is in IT and in cybersecurity, it's a team sport, right? None of us do this in isolation. So one of the things that I think really is reflected in the quality of the zero trust strategy was we were able to put it out for public comment. And that gave an opportunity for our, you know, private sector business partners, for academics, for civic tech folks to provide feedback on the strategy that we were working on. We incorporated a vast majority of the feedback that we received, and I think it made it a much stronger strategy. So those are the kind of things that we are hoping to continue to do, making sure that we're partnering so, uh, you know, effectively, A, with our federal workforce, and B, with our industry partners that do so much of the work to power the missions of the federal government. You're leading by example on that front is just so helpful to the community as, as you know, as you've been a champion for the best answers arrive when we have a diverse set of views and experience and bringing together the best that industry and government has to offer. So my thanks yeah. and appreciation for that on behalf of all of AgDiac. They, we talked about the first three priorities during the first segment of the interview. Let's let's wrap up the priority sec discussion with the fourth priority, which was uh, data as a strategic asset. Where are some successes that you're seeing there, and what would you like to see happen next on the data front? Yeah, d data is such an interesting category area, right? Uh, I am a product person by trade, and so we develop great products because we have data that allows us to build services out to hopefully delight our customers. And in government, government has so much data. Job one is keeping it safe and secure. Job two is figuring out how can we utilize that data to deliver an exceptional experience for our customers. So we are doing things like, you know, interrogating our policies, making sure that we are creating a glide path and making things as easy as possible for us to share appropriately, share data between products or services. So we're doing a lot of investigative work right now in the customer experience executive order. We have these five life experiences. I'll use retirement uh, as an example, that when you are getting ready to retire, you're going to contact Social Security and, you know, Medicare. And there's a lot of data, depending on what front door you go through, you either start in one place or the other. And we really want to think about filling out, an example would be, filling out a form that is actually jointly owned by both. This is totally hypothetical. I'm not forecasting anything, but these are the kind of questions we're asking ourselves because a user really wants to start one place and not have to do repetitive tasks and not have to give the same information to the government multiple times. We also don't want to store that information multiple times. So those are the kind of things that we are doing in the uh, area of data, let alone so much activity going on, you know, with AI and uh, all of the other areas where there's real data innovation going on across government. Yeah, it's just such a powerful area. You know, I was I was around back in the old days in government when GPS data was first released and how the entrepreneurial engines and innovations that that resulted right. in far beyond the initial use cases for, for GPS data in the public domain. And, and there are just so many examples like that from research in medicine and healthcare and, and other areas. Right. And so I can't wait to see like what's the next trove that we, we launch on. Yep. And, uh, 
And maybe while we're talking about the life experiences stuff, another area where you've been doing some great work is uh, is with the Veterans Affairs, Department of Veterans Affairs and the U.S. Digital Service. And notice one of the TMF projects that you talk about in the report identifies that partnership between USDS and VA to work on the veterans identity modernization. I think that's just a great little success story. I wonder if you can maybe share a little bit about that with the audience. Absolutely. You know, I, I spent several years as a member of the United States Digital Service over at VA, so they are near and dear to my heart. And I am always so incredibly inspired by the both the mission of VA, but also the passion that the federal employees at VA have in serving the mission. And, you know, one of the things that we had talked about several years ago before the digital modernization of VA was, you know, how do we, when someone is offboarding from active duty, how do we make it as simple as possible for them to transition back to civilian life? And what are the different moments in that journey that actually matter for that veteran or for that active duty service member as they're going through on this journey? And so on the other side, the veteran side, so that's kind of the, the DOD side, on the veteran side, you know, previously uh, veterans had found it really difficult to access the digital services at VA. Some of them were confusing, you know, and they had some real challenges. And so one of those challenges was having difficulty having to have multiple usernames and passwords for every single different service at VA. So the programs were siloed and they all forced you to authenticate through a username and a password into that service. Well, that's not a great customer experience. And so VA has really leaned into this and has been trying to figure out how can they consolidate these multiple systems, you know, private sector systems, in-house, homegrown systems, in order to deliver the best experience for veterans accessing any of their benefits. And so through the Technology Modernization Fund, VA actually um, put in a proposal to focus on these two priorities, you know, implementing access, better access for these digital services and removing those outdated and duplicative sign-in options. So they are going through an entire process right now to implement login.gov, which is a safe and secure government version that would also live with the private sector version of authentication at VA, and try to sunset some of the older systems that are still hanging out there. And so it's both, both IT modernization, right, that VA is in the middle of, as well as digital transformation, because they are making it safer, more secure, and simplifying the experience that a veteran has interacting with their benefits. And so it's exciting to see this team, you know, now this is five years later, working on the same problem that had been identified many years ago, but really having dramatically improved experience for veterans. And it's a great project. We're we're so happy to have the opportunity to go on the journey with the with the VA on this. It's a powerful example of, of what this work can accomplish. And I really appreciate you taking the time to 
share it with us. We've got about 30, 40 seconds left. I'd love to give you an opportunity. So sort of parting advice, you know, the report ends with the, I mean, the IT ops plan concludes with this importance of driving change and uh, and tying that together with the fact that it's been 20 years since the EGOV Act was put into place. I'd love for you maybe just to offer the audience some next steps that you'd like to see in terms of agency actions to help drive this agenda forward. Yeah, I think that the 20 year anniversary, you know, the eGov Act predicted the critical role technology would play in providing government services to Americans. You know, if you watch an old TV show and you see the old technology, it, it is so apparent to you. So we haven't always necessarily kept pace through our tech policy. That's an area that we're really working on. But I think also what, what is really important for what we're looking for in the future, um, incremental progress, especially with the Technology Modernization Fund, making sure that people are doing pilots, right? Starting someplace, learning, building with your customers, you know, not for them, making sure that you are really thinking about how the technology that you're contemplating is going to be tested with users. So smaller chunks, biting off smaller pieces, doing it rapidly, learning from that, and then, you know, continuing on the journey, I think is something that we hope that we can continue to support through TMF and some of these investments that we're making. I think that's a fabulous place to leave it. Claire Martirana is the Federal Chief Information Officer. Claire, thank you so much for your outstanding leadership of the federal technology community and for joining us today. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be hearing about two of the 2022 ACT-IAC Innovation Champion Award winners supporting our national laboratories, DHS and CBP. I'm Dave Wenigring, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren. ACT-IAC recently gave out its 2022 Innovation Awards at our Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference in Cambridge, Maryland. If you missed the conference, you can still learn more about the Innovation Award winners by checking out the link at the Federal News Network website. Over the course of the summer, we've been interviewing our five Innovation Champion Award winners. Continuing those interviews today, I'm joined now in the studio by John Hutchison, Assistant Operations Research Analyst at the Argonne National Laboratory. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you, Dave. Absolute pleasure to be here. It's been a pleasure working with you and your team before, so it's uh, great to be back. Well, you know, as we've talked about before, we criticize a lot more often in this town than we celebrate successes. And so being able to give out these awards to highly deserving organizations has been great fun. And it's great to have you on the show. We're delighted to be continuing our conversations with the 2022 ACT-IAC Innovation Champion Award winners. That's our top honor for innovative solutions in the government market. John and the Argonne National Laboratory team working with the Department of Homeland Security were recognized for the Threat Identification, Determination, and Evaluation, or TIDE initiative. So first and foremost, congratulations on receiving the Innovation Champion Award. And before we talk about the initiative, why don't you Tell us a little bit about yourself and the work at Argonne National Laboratory. Thank you again. I've been working with Argonne National Lab, specifically the Decision and Infrastructure Sciences Division for the past three years. Uh, prior to that, I was an Army officer for over 10 years. I had accomplished most of what you'd expect from a junior officer with standard training, pipeline, leadership opportunities. Worked with soldiers from all over the country and all sorts of background, unique stories, and I absolutely loved the job. But I had an injury kind of worsened over time, so it prevented me from continuing the service. But before I left, I had the opportunity to study operations research, a field of study that supports decision-making with an emphasis on decision science, modeling, simulation, and optimization. 
So I joined Argonne as the Assistant Operations Research Analyst three years ago, primarily supporting the Federal Protective Service out of the Department of Homeland Security, as you mentioned, as well as the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. These projects focus on security at federally protected facilities, as well as critical infrastructure around the country. So we're taking a look at protective measures, uh, decision support, and we're comparing to a threat model to generate an automated threat assessment for the Federal Protective Service. Some other work, interesting things that we do at the lab, or at least that I've been a part of at the lab, we work with uh, natural language processing to support information synthesis. We do some data analysis with community resilience modeling, some physics and environmental science with tropical cyclone modeling. We did an interesting thing for FEMA with a schoolhouse styled like a school course to course equivalency across FEMA courses, as well as plenty of other projects. So a lot of, a lot of interesting work, a lot of interesting science. That's, that's kind of me for the past couple of years. Excellent. You're smack dab in the center of a really a lot of important activity. And so let's dig into the winning innovation. Tell us about the problem that you were trying to solve and what you came up with in developing the TIDE initiative. Absolutely. So TIDE, the Threat Identification Determination Evaluation, a little bit of background. We're going to utilize the sheer amount of data available from an FPS inspector's security assessment at a facility. We're going to add to that a handful of data sources that an inspector would have had to manually search, such as features of the surrounding area beyond the scope of a typical assessment, as well as others. And then we can produce an automated threat assessment. So this is like a uh, one-to-end list of prioritized threats with an unsupervised grouping of threat scores to support a discussion of prioritization. Uh, the challenge here is that in an ideal world, every inspector would produce a matching assessment giving a similar facility. However, we recognize that individuals bias their judgments based on their experiences. So we can't expect a cyber expert to look at a facility the same way as a physical security expert. And it doesn't matter how much training they have, and they have fantastic training. The realistic expectation is that they're going to see the problems facing the facility different. So our primary challenge was to build this tool such that the results of an assessment are defendable and repeatable. Uh, so restated, every automated report is built off the input of dozens of inspectors covering the experiences of hundreds of assessments. The results consider that aggregate opinion, automate a large report that covers the situation today, and that report will be the same for all users, uh, removing some of that individual bias. And now the cyber and the physical security experts can tailor the report so we don't miss anything. The majority of that final text will match across all users given kind of a similar situation. It is such an important breakthrough to be able to do this. And I just, I applaud you so much on, on the effort that you guys pulled together. It is never easy working on innovative new solutions or new approaches. And so what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in developing the solution? Sure. The challenge here is creating this idea, this objective score for something as abstract as the threat of, say, assault or some other undesirable offense at your facility. Uh, so we accomplished this task by eliciting from professionals on a comparative basis for the protective quality of various features of a facility's protective plan. So for example, your facility checks IDs at the door. My facility does the same, but our ID check security access point is visible, right? So now we can discuss with security experts how much is the visibility of the checkpoint likely to deter the bad actor, right? So this is weeks of discussions and disagreements with uh, in, in, inspectors and experts from all over the country discussing every aspect of the threat that our teams could imagine. And the result is this uh, kind of decision science, multi-attribute utility theory model that has passed the smell test, both like a common sense, like the results don't stink, but also it's safe, moral, ethical, legal outputs that are saving our FPS sponsors a great deal of effort in reporting. It's such important work, but oftentimes 
you know, bringing visibility to problems is not always appreciated, right? So I'm sure part of this, and maybe we'll, we'll chat a little bit more about that, but part of this is the cultural change about better to be aware than to, than to have the problems strike, you know, sneak up on you. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And so the, the main discussion here is going to be that facility security manager who's doing a wonderful job. And now you have a team of strangers come in to talk about, you know, what might not be going well. So it's, you know, it's going to be a difficult discussion. We want to uh, support that in the best way we can, but you're absolutely right. It's a tough, tough situation. Yeah. In, in a past life, I looked after the critical infrastructure protection efforts of the Navy and, and same kind of deal, right? I mean, at first you were not always like, they were not always thrilled to see you, but then once you got a chance to see the value of what you could get out of this new knowledge and how that could help improve the mission, then 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 you had them, and then things went on from there. And so things are going on from here with tides too. And so, what are some of the next steps for the initiative? Where would you like to take it from here? So the purpose of the tool is to support that sponsor's threat assessment process. So we see several opportunities to kind of expand in that realm, right? So. During the assessment, FPS inspectors are walking around the facility, taking notes and answering questions out of this kind of massive survey tool, ultimately feeding the automated reporting in, in Tide uh, that we've been discussing now. So it would be great to wield more AI tools throughout the process. So like, I wouldn't need to write down the make and model of every camera system I, I saw. If all I did was had to take a picture of that and feed that to a smart database supported with image recognition, right? And that would support our efforts toward this idea of uh, continuing assessments. So our assessment is supposed to be the snapshot in time. Given this current situation right now, this is what the threat picture looks like. We're getting closer to being able to rerun the assessment at any time uh, to capture that kind of living, evolving environment. So it'd be exciting to capture the most exact details about the countermeasures present in the facility. The restated look more like instead of just saying, you know, you have seven cameras from this producer made in this year, we would know exact make model. This is where they are. This is their location, right? And all that extra information could be brought to bear in this continuing assessment idea. We've talked a little bit about cultural change, but it's probably worth a little bit more of our time. What were some of the cultural change issues that you saw in trying to get this initiative to take root? And what's some advice you have for the audience about how to address those cultural change issues? Because as you know, so often it's less about the ability or willingness to adopt a new technology as it is to think differently about processes and roles and who moved my cheese and things like that. Yeah, so I, I'm going to kind of say that right back to you, right? So the hardest part absolutely was buying in the tool for this cultural change. On the face of it, the tool appears to be stripping some of the responsibility of the users to do some of their key tasks, right? So now you're talking to, you know, the, the grizzled veteran of so many years of federal protective service, and we're saying, we have this thing that can do this thing that you're already doing, right? And nobody wants to hear that, right? But so our role has been to shift that kind of culture, that way of thinking to the lines of, this is just here to help. We are removing some of the difficult, mundane, routine tasks along the long list of tasks that have to be complete to provide this assessment. And we're giving uh, sponsors more time to do the hard part of the job, like the critical thinking in that assessment. And then it helps a little bit that our automated report is very long. So we can point to that and say, that's all text you didn't have to write yourself, right? So maybe maybe a little bit of a joking way to, to help out, but that's that's been the key for us is switching that mentality of this is by no means a replacement. This doesn't replace anything. It's only here to help and support some of that critical analysis. Yeah, well, I don't think you can understate that, that, you know, if you can make the organizational leaders have, like, be invested in it, have skin in the game. So it's not just that the experts are coming from out of town to try and make things better. I'm from Washington and I'm here to help, as the cliche goes, right? But right. also then demonstrate, because because oftentimes we make decisions based out of also fear and anecdote, as opposed to data-driven decisions. So being able to show the reductions in workload, the, the faster response times, all those sorts of things are just super helpful ways to get over the issues of cultural change. 
change. You'd mentioned earlier in the interview about working with CISA. And uh, and so I'm wondering if there's like, if you see like in addition to the physical security powers of the tool, are there like other cybersecurity uses for this type of tool set that you might be thinking about going forward? There absolutely is. And there's a, you know, a really interesting part of the tool where the, where they overlap, right? What physical access do you have to your cyber domain and what weaknesses, vulnerabilities might there be? Uh, but so we're, we're working with cyber team to continually update this automated report to include better information, more useful information, and that's more relevant to our current users given current situation. And, you know, the difference between the, the cyber and the physical comes up all the time, right? Uh, we, we've updated our, our basis threat scenario and that was mostly with physical security experts we ran that by the cyber team there you know this is right out you know this has to be much more important this has to be much more inclusive of, of other concerns right so it's a it's a it's a fantastic balance but you absolutely have to include both excellent we've got about 30 seconds left would you like to offer a piece of parting advice to our audience of government and industry executives about how to bring innovation into the market uh, the the best advice for for bringing innovation to to the the federal sponsors got to be a good listener right so that good idea can get you in the door uh, but to get invited back you got to be that good listener focus on the relationship focus on that collaboration and that takes a lot of work it's uh, much harder than it sounds right but uh, I think that's the the best advice I can offer. John Hutchison is an assistant operations research analyst at the Argonne National Laboratory. Congratulations again on being an innovation champion. And thank you for taking the time to join us today and talk about the great work that you're doing. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll catch up with another innovation champion award winner. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, and in this segment, we're going to talk with another 2022 ACT-IAC Innovation Champion Award winner. Ronnie Namada is Contracting Officer at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Thanks for joining us today, Ronnie. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dave. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're delighted to have champions of innovation on the show. We thank you again for coming to the conference in May and, and being on the panel discussion to talk about the great things that are going on in the federal market. And, uh, and it's great to be celebrating another Innovation Champion Award winner, our top honor for innovative solutions in the government market. And so, uh, Ronnie, I'll ask you, uh, you know, you and the CBP team are being recognized for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Procurement Bots Initiative. And I have to say robotic process automation is all the rage now in the federal government. And it's excellent to see routinized tasks being replaced by technology to let government decision makers focus on the mission of the agency. So congratulations for being you know, a champion in that space. And before oh, we you. talk specifically about the initiative, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at CBP? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm a contracting officer at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Uh, my, my primary customers are our financial systems and our facilities maintenance. But additionally, I'm a, I'm a part of a uh, CBP. Procurement Innovation Labs, like a spinoff of DHS's uh, procurement innovation uh, like team. Uh, I'm sorry, we're called the Procurement Innovation Team. We, we call ourselves PIT instead of PIL. Also, I'm uh, part of a DHS, small DHS working group that's focusing on uh, procurement innovations and, and uh, things like that I feel are, are very important to be able to share uh, ideas on how we can further improve DHS throughout, uh, uh, procurement throughout DHS. Very good. And so now let's dig into the winning initiative. 
Tell us a little bit about the challenge that you were facing and what was the problem you were trying to solve when you came up with the Procurement Bots Initiative? Yeah, so our, our leadership, uh, of course, this is not, you know, just CBP, but it's everywhere in government. It's the uh, rising amount of uh, de-obligations that are needed. Uh, and de-obligations are unspent money from contract. They could either be expired funding or, or uh, funding that's still active that can be repurposed. So, so things like that is uh, very useful. Uh, when we first started our project, we had about uh, a little over a thousand of these DOBs just laying around and increasing. So our leadership said, hey, let's, how are we going to be able to make a dent on this? So uh, we kind of settled on a technology that we had learned about from a, uh, another conference that seemed to be helping out GSA. Uh, so I said, uh, you know, let's try out this robotics process automation, see what's uh, going to happen. So we met with our OIT group who had a, a uh, a contract available for us for free. You know, that's very important, right? So they, we, we met with them and the way they described it to us, like, hey, this is going to be a one-week project. You guys can be done. So when it started uh, around the time of the pandemic, you know, we sat down with them and, and decided, hey, how are we going to do the process on this. I quickly found out this is not a one week. <laughs> it's going to be more, it's going to be months long. So with our group of two, we expanded it to a, a team of five and uh, we we're able to uh, meeting just a few hours every week. Uh, you know, we, we were able to come out with a unattended bot that reduced the process of the obligations from a little over an hour to just 23 minutes. And, you know, for, for someone, you know, a lot of the folks who are working at home, got kids running around, that's very helpful for for a robot to do that for you and reduces that to, to that amount of time. Uh, and the time that we put it into production, uh, we have uh, de-obligated at least over 200 plus actions. It's probably double that by now. Uh, and at least 26 million. And it's probably you know, way more than that at this point. So it's something that we're very proud of. Uh, this particular bot uses eight different business uh, software applications and uh, uh, database systems. And of course, with those each uh, uh, eight systems and uh, applications, they all have their own little quirkiness and we all have to try to adjust to that quirkiness and uh, to be able to make it say like 98% consistent, it's uh, something that we're very happy with. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in developing the solution? Primarily, I believe it was the just gaining trust of business owners, uh, systems owners. You know, when you meet with them, they're always a little bit hesitant. And, you know, what are you trying to do? Of course, our own our own OIT security team. You know, they're, they're doing their job. Like, you know, what are you guys really trying to do? So it, it took a while to gain their trust, and, and I think that's the. One of the very important things when you're doing projects like these, you need to get that trust so that you can get the ball rolling. Once we kind of did that, things kind of uh, got a little bit faster for us, and it really picked up around the fall of, uh, I would say, 2020. Uh, and we were able to, to, to really pick things up in a few months' time. You know, uh, realistically speaking, in months, we, we did it in about 12, uh, 12 months. But when you were considering how many, uh, uh, just a few hours a week, it really was probably six weeks at the most in, in total doing all this. So that was, you know, pretty, pretty cold for, for a team that's not familiar with uh, RPA and just met a few hours a week. So I'm so glad that you brought up trust. It is such a huge issue when you try to implement a new process or a new solution. And, uh, and for our audience, I'll say Stephen M. R. Covey wrote the book on it, as they said. He wrote a great book on it about a decade or so ago called The Speed of Trust. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to because it talks about the price that we pay both in terms of time and cost by yeah. you know, operating in low-trust environments. But I, I'm wondering, the other interesting challenge sometimes with RPA solutions is that 
people have to understand that this will support them, not displace them. So did you have any like conversations you had to have about the robots aren't here to take your job. The robots are here to do the part that's the time consuming right. computer part right. of it, not the human decision making part of it. Yeah, so so you, you, you I, I definitely met both sides. So uh, you know, uh, for, from like my generation and above, it was great hesitancy. You know, for me, it, it's I always love technology. You know, outside of work, I always try to keep up with whatever is new. So so something like this, and I've got three young kids to say, you know, to for to to be able to have something that can do your job for you while you got kids running around that's awesome and we have our interns uh, they've given us some great feedback uh, we, we let a few of our interns run it and, and they've told us like hey i've actually learned more watching this bot than actually sitting with someone uh, virtually and trying to learn from them so you know that that's something that we really uh that I, I really love to hear is that you learn more you know with these bots and actually sitting down and reading a piece of paper on how to do a process so so what's next where would you like to take it from here uh, you know, personally, and I've uh, asked this with leadership, is to to automate an entire procurement process, say something like the simplified acquisition process, particularly like IT hardware, software buys. You know, th those are kind of kind of easy, and I shouldn't say easy, but those are kind of the process is pretty much there, and you can kind of automate that process. That's really what we want to try to do, and we try to uh, mature our our RPA team, you know, I, I really like how GSA has done it and how IRS has done it. Well, we want to really try to make something like that within DHS. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, great minds at, within DHS and SCVP, and I think if we try to do it, we will have a really strong, like, uh, innovation robotic team. I, I applaud that. I think that'll be awesome. I, I wish you great success in doing that because, you know, we. We have so much work to be done, and the acquisition workforce is very pressed upon you know, yeah. to do more and do it faster. And anything we can Absolutely. do to help help make that happen just is bringing great success to organizations. So we've got about a minute or so left, and I'm wondering if you'd maybe like to offer some advice to our audience of industry and government leaders about, like, you know, what's some advice? You're, you're doing the pit, which I just think is awesome. So congratulations yeah. on having the pit. Thank what's you. some advice you'd like to leave the audience with on how to bring innovation into the federal government and into federal agencies? Uh, my, my greatest advice would be don't, don't be afraid to to fail at these things. Um, you know, if you're not failing, you know, you're not learning, right? So like I had read a little bit of, uh, of how Amazon, uh, they kind of reward like failures that end up uh, helping that company. Uh, one of the funny things I, I read was that if a team is consistently doing well, that means they set the bar pretty low. So, you know, uh, you know, doing innovation requires a lot of failure. So it's, uh, you know, don't be afraid to do that because you'll, you'll find great things out of failure. If you're not failing, you're not learning. I think that's yeah. an excellent way to leave the conversation today. Congratulations again, Ronnie, on this outstanding work, bringing RPA to, to the business of government and uh, and being a champion for the for, uh, procurement innovation team, because I just think that's Thank just you. a great place to be working in this space right now. Ronnie Namada is a contracting officer at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Congratulations again on being an Innovation Champion Award winner, and thank you for joining us on the show today. Keep leading with the with flair and enthusiasm because Absolutely. you're doing a heck of a job. And uh, you can learn more about the federal government's information technology operating plan and the 2022 ACDIAC Innovation Award winners by checking out the links on the Federal News Network website and at our website, www.actiac.org. Delivering innovative solutions and maximizing the impact of technology 
modernization are both important opportunities to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.